Yeah. So when was um when you were doing this dog sledding thing, was that when I was down in South America? So it would have been in the winter, right? Last winter? Yeah, that's one. I think I started well it must be maybe a month after you left, I think. Yeah. So how long did how long were you doing that for? Was that a whole winter kind of thing? Yeah, it was a full season, sort of six months of it. I got cut short a little bit at the end because COVID hit and everything had to shut down. So nearly a very full season, but yeah, broadly. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to think COVID's been going on a whole year already. It, it, I almost forget that it's been one long stretch, but it keeps like coming and going. You know what I mean? Yeah, literally. It's just become the normality now, eh? Yeah. So you started in December and then dog sledded until... March. Yeah, so I started at the place, um, I think it was October, so I got about a month and a half um, before most of the other people started, Yeah. just kind of just getting to know the dogs and yeah. working with them, cleaning, just kind of doing all the day-to-day stuff that you need to do to keep the kennel running, and then we, have, you kind of, we had a late start as well, because you, you really have to wait for the snow base to come in. And then, yeah, eventually snow base hit, like sort of early December, a couple of training days in there, and then, bam, straight into the season. What are the training days like? (laughs) The the training days are hectic. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, It's um, kind of just a few days, like you get two, three days where they just get all of the new sled guides in, and it's just kind of lapsed. So... There's like a uh, 150 dogs, I believe we had. Whoa. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, just for and... just for the one company. Yeah. Where do they keep them all? It's so uh, the kennels all on site. Wow. Um, so I'll, I'll go through. So like the. Okay. Yeah. The kennel setup is it's like a big courtyard basically. So they had, you know, probably 40 or so, 40 50 kennels. Mm around the outside and each kennel would have sort of three or four dogs in there um and then there's a couple of dogs that just don't get on well with others will just bully other dogs if they get put with and they are in the courtyard and they've got like a a post with a chain on they've got a little house and there's lots of dogs around them but not quite close enough so that they could kill each other <laughs> really and so there's yeah, 100, 150 dogs in total Wow, so there's like a couple boss dogs that sort of tell the other ones, like I obviously there's a pecking order, but there's some that can't really be chill with the other ones. Are they the ones that yeah. lead? Sorry, go on. Oh, are the are the boss dogs the ones that lead and pull the sled? So this actually for me was probably the best part of this job was just seeing the sort of pack dynamics of all of these dogs especially when you've got so many all together yeah so so you've obviously got the obvious sort of hierarchy um so you've got your alphas and then the kind of just kind of ranks down from there mm-hmm. but then there's also so many other facets in that so you've got some dogs that are kind of near the pecking order and they would you know they could kill fucking half of the dogs there um but they would never be an alpha because they don't possess the sort of responsibility aspect that an alpha really needs to have. It's the kind of thing that you kind of, yeah, you imagine it's true, but 
you really do start to see it in person when you're there. So when just after I started, well, so just before I started, sorry, the old alpha of the pack died, um, which is super, super sad. And I came in one day and everyone was so upset. I was like, what has happened? And was, yeah, the, the old alpha died. And then throughout my season, there was this whole process of watching the pack, establishing a new alpha. And they start to realize that, you know, it's up for grabs. And we eventually established, established this new dog called Biggie. He was a big guy, super, super friendly, like huge dog. And then like, like you'd go into his kennel and he'd jump up and he'd knock you to the floor sort of dog. Um, but we would always put like the puppies in with him because as much as he would let them jump all over and do crazy stuff, when they went too far, he would tell them no and he would do it very dominantly and they would just listen. And it's just things like that that are just incredible to watch. And there's obviously there's a divide between the male and female. Like if you put a very aggressive male dog with a very aggressive female dog, they'll probably get on quite well. Whereas obviously male and male, female and female would be a disaster. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay. And did, did Biggie end up being the new alpha? Yeah, so Biggie, Biggie eventually got established as a new alpha. So we when we were training like puppies and they were kind of first getting on the sled about a year old, we would generally put them next to him or a similar dog so that when they start misbehaving and stuff, the alpha can just be like, Hey, focus, like, listen, mm-hmm. let's do this properly. And you really do see that when you're doing it. You put these two next to each other. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, it's almost like kids in class and one or the teacher of the kids or something. And the one is really whipping the other ones in line. Wow. To an extent, I would almost imagine it as like you've just got one really good student that everyone loves and no one would ever mess with. The teacher tells them what to do and then they get everyone else in line. It's almost how I would imagine it. Yeah, you're the teacher and the dog is the student kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so yeah, you, you started the season. Um, you got there before the snowpack and then you had your first few training days. Is it just mayhem when you're trying to train the dogs and do they sort of test you as well and see like if they, if you are the boss? Yeah. So you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's the one thing that they always say is one, the dogs will teach you how to do it. Like these dogs have been doing this for years. It's what they do day in, day out. They love it. They can do it better than we can. Um, but that's the thing is they will be testing you at the same time as as soon as you get a new guide in, they will mess with you. They'll see how far they can push you, see how much they can get away with with you. So it's, those first few training days are very important to establish yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, as I'm still in charge of you, I'm the dominant one here. And it's a bit of a fine line while still trying to get them to teach you and show you how it's done. Because these dogs are so, so intelligent. Um, as an example, one of them, one of the guys that worked with us is very, very experienced dog sledder. He was doing like a private tour a couple of years back. He told me this story and this guy had a very specific route that he wanted to take. So took him on the route and he took his two lead dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the ones at the front, they most important dogs in the team. They need to know where they're going. They need to be responsible because if they mess up, then the whole team's going to be messed up. Mm-hmm. So he took his two lead dogs, walked his trail with them, walked it back again, came back two weeks later with the guy. He said, hike, 
and the dogs ran the exact trail that he showed them. It just shows you how intelligent, how, how these lead dogs just know what they're doing so well. It's incredible. Yeah, wow. So they learnt the trail after just one rotation. Yeah, there. Yeah, sense of direction. It's just amazing. So it's really just like you just got to show them how to do it, like how to execute what you want them to do, and then just let them do that thing. Yeah. Do the dogs um, get pretty tired after a run, or how how much running do they usually do in a day? So this kind of comes into why we had 150 dogs at the kennel. Yeah. So we, in general, for most of the dogs, they would do two runs a day. Each runs broadly around an hour in total, including breaks and all of that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. around about an hour in total. Um, so each dog can generally do two in a day. Some of the dogs would only ever do one in a day and, or they would never do it on hot days specifically because here in Whistler, even though it's you know still very cold compared to most of the world, it's actually much warmer than you'd ideally want for dog sledding. Um, yeah. So the ideal temperature for a lot of our dogs would be sort of minus 10 because they're what we call like an Alaskan short-haired husky breed. So they've got much less fur than you'd expect. They're not your traditional like Siberian husky, um, just so that they can run in these temperatures without overheating too quickly. And that's much more of an issue than them just getting tired. Um, so like your Siberian huskies, the traditional ones you'd think, they actually run best at around minus 30, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Well, I guess dogs don't sweat, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're exactly right. It all comes through there breathing and actually a little bit through their paws yeah so i guess if they're just like running around the these circuits for one or two hours and they're panting minus 10 with with their coat on or minus 30 like you said but the only way to really get rid of that heat is just by panting that makes sense that they like the cold definitely yeah yeah 100 percent. and so on on a tour we would stop sort of four or five times probably in a tour just to give them that chance to do their breathing for the cardiovascular endurance and to cool down a bit yeah. and you'll often see when you kind of stop halfway through a trail some of the dogs will quite literally fall sideways and just lie on their back in the deep powder like just off the trail and it's adorable to watch and they're just trying to cool down a little bit cool their skin down a bit yeah just to get a little bit hot and bothered while they're running yeah. it's amazing to did you ever um, tip a sled? Is that something that happens every now and then? <laughs> yeah, uh, I unfortunately did tip a sled once. Um, it was right, it was actually right towards the end of the season, so it's kind of starting to become spring. I remember it very vividly. It was, it was a nice sunny day, and I was the last sled, so we would usually kind of all set off together, so it'd be kind of four or five um sleds will all set off together and i was the last sled on this day and right as you kind of get into the trail you kind of come from that opening where we've got the sleds and you go into the trees there's a little de- ditch on the left hand side right so i was going up this trail and my dogs just didn't want to go in a straight line they pulled me as far left as they could for whatever reason and i had a dad and his two kids in my sled and I managed to tip my sled into the ditch. Oh, no. Involved. Dogs was just sat up on the trail, happy as Larry, no worries. 
they just thrown us into the ditch and i'd done all the steering i could to try and keep us out didn't want to work yeah it's just one of those days and yeah i just ended up with these guys in the ditch my boss and my boss's boss the kennel manager we're all stood around and watched this whole thing un- un- unfold absolutely laughing their asses off oh that's great <laughs> ran up and, like pulled us all out everyone was fine there was even a photographer right in front of me which took pictures of the whole thing, which was just brilliant. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the one time that I tipped my sled and it was misbehaving dogs. I probably could have done something a bit better, but at the time there was nothing I could really do. But, yeah, that was quite quite an embarrassing one. So how do you actually steer the sled? Because you, you're saying uh, you tried to steer away. Is Is it like by telling the dogs where to go or is there actually kind of like a device you can use to steer the skis of the sled um so there is in a lot of dog sledding you need to be able to tell your lead dogs to go left or right mm-hmm. um so sometimes you just need to tell them you know if you've got a split in the trail or whatever left or right so they know where to go and they can not get confused with our trail it was pretty much just straight up and we had a bit of a break at the top nice view and everything we would turn our sleds around give the dogs a break and then come back down the same trail so we didn't really need that um what we would do in terms of steering the sled itself so to, to steer the dogs you, we would use what was called g and ha yeah so they're left and right respectively yeah um and that's what you shout to your lead dogs you need them to split the kind of steering that I was talking about in that situation is more steering the sled than the dogs. Okay. So, for example, when you'd use this, would be like if you're going round down a hill and you go around a bit of a tight corner. We had a few of those on the trail. The dogs are just gonna they're gonna take the racing line broadly. It makes the most sense to them. They're just gonna stick right to the inside of the corner, and that's obviously because there's usually a snowbank there. That's gonna pull the sled right in there as well. Yeah. And kind then of... we'll tip your sled, and you'll everyone will get thrown out. So what you kind of have to do is you would basically say you're going to around the right-hand corner, you stand on the left ski with your right foot, lean off to one side, hopefully not far enough to tip the sled itself, although it gets a bit sketchy sometimes. You basically put your left foot out on the snow and you just kind of pull it in. You just try and pull the front of the sled out to the left a bit. So just putting that pressure on the left side, noses the sled out a little bit Mm -hmm. just to give you a little more little bit more of a wide circle around a corner yeah um so you can kind of do that to kind of just pull the sled one way or another because it's a lot harder to kind of direct the dogs to go somewhere that they're not naturally going to go if that makes sense yeah totally so i guess it's kind of like turning a bike how you can put a leg out sort of to go around a tighter corner when you're on a bmx or a downhill bike or something yeah yeah broadly it's kind of yeah just it's almost like imagine you're rowing in a boat and you're going in one direction and you just stick your oar into one side and just hold it there it's going to kind of nose the front of the boat round to that side yeah it's that sort of premise you just kind of dig your foot in a bit and just kind of put that extra resistance yeah so how big is this because i've actually never done dog sledding i was going to tell you before we did this podcast as well it's on my um my i have like a bucket list of things i want to do in my life and dog sledding has been on the bucket list for so long like when i first started my bucket list i don't know what it is but um have you ever heard of the alaskan iditarod 
Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I think I watched a documentary on the Alaskan Iditarod when I was like pretty young, maybe fourteen or fifteen, and I was watching it thinking, "Wow, this is insane." So I didn't realize how like gnarly the Alaskan Iditarod was. So my it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, my original bucket list item was do the Alaskan Iditarod because I thought it was maybe a couple day dog sled, but I didn't didn't realize it was like the hardest dog sled slash one of the world's hardest races. So I toned down the the bucket list item to to go dog sledding. So <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. This, I believe the Iditarod is a thousand miles. There's two really big ones. Is the Iditarod and I can't remember the name of the other one. So one of them's a thousand miles. One of them's a thousand k's, and it's just insane yeah yeah i'd love to yeah i'd love to even watch it i think at what just just to see them cross the finish line all haggard and you know they've just been bearing the elements and coming from you know 20 below or 30 below for days on end and some of them apparently they some of them sleep in caves and stuff and they're not always sleeping in like ideal locations because they can't pick where they're going to finish the day and it just sounds insane yeah, you're exactly right. It's I'm not 100% sure exactly how I feel about dog sled racing, if I'm being completely honest. Like, it's an incredible feat, and I know it's been done for a very, very long time. Mm. But the kind of worry that I have with dog sledding races is it kind of almost turns into the same sort of ethos as you get with, like, horse racing, mm-hmm. whereas if they're not good enough then don't really care what happens to the dog, which I'm not obviously a very big fan of. Um, And that's kind of why I fell in love with the dog sled company that I work for, is Trappers Run Dog Sledding in Whistler. They basically rescue loads and loads of um, ex-like racing dogs, so ones that just aren't good enough for the team or they don't pay enough attention or whatever, and we rescue loads and loads of those dogs and oh, cool. kind of take them in and give them, almost try and put the enjoyment back into dog sledding for them because so many of these dogs absolutely love it. But if we bring a dog, we rescue a dog in from a racing kennel and, you know, they could be a bit intimidated by the whole new pack and we could put them on a sled. And if they don't want to run, we're not going to make them run. We just let them chill in the kennel, be with their friends all day and they start to see all these other dogs going out and really enjoying dog sledding and, you know, they get really excited for it. And so you often start to see that these dogs that originally didn't want to do it because of their past experience of having to do it, mm. you start to see them almost getting that kind of FOMO. Like they, they feel like they're missing out on it. And then you'll put them back on the sled, give them another chance, and they'll pull like their life depended on it. And they just absolutely love it again. That's so cool. It's just that kind of ethos that I loved about the specific company where I worked. I know it hasn't always been like that with some other companies, but That's when funny. it comes to the racing, it's just a bit more, you it, know, if they don't do the job, I don't really care. Yeah, I honestly never even considered that. I didn't think of yeah. that until you said it right now. That's so true, though. I I just kind of thought that, yeah, that was a magnificent feat, but, yeah, the dogs are out there running for days on end. That's pretty brutal. Like, yeah, yeah. I never really considered that at all. And really there is obviously, point. like, it's not really crazily inhumane. Um, like, it's not even slightly inhumane. Like, they get, I'm pretty sure they get 
two full teams worth of dogs each competitor and at certain points throughout the race they can swap dogs out so they don't obviously they don't all do the full race mm-hmm. um so they kind of do substitutes here and there and all of that and you know they bring beds and all of that it's not inhumane i just don't like the fact that the dogs are just a means to an end it broadly like i know it's obviously not i'm sure a lot of these people absolutely love their dogs but yeah if they don't do the job then they don't do the job you know a lot of, a lot of times that's kind of all they all that's worried about yeah so the the dog sleds that um you you guys were using you said there's like a father son and you so how big is the sled roughly so like a single we, bed i don't know how much variation there is in dog sleds obviously we only had one type of sled and it was made by a guy somewhere in canada who hand makes all of these sleds and they're very expensive um because that's kind of you know you want it to be as easy as you can on the dogs so mm-hmm. these are all very lightweight and everything the ones that we use specifically, I believe, are slightly bigger than the ones that they use in like racing and such like, because we need obviously people in them. Yeah. And you could fit two adults kind of sat in each other's laps relatively comfortably. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if you're taller, you might have to bend your legs a little bit, but should be pretty comfy. Um, I believe the racing ones are a bit smaller. They're kind of probably about half the length just because you need a bit of storage space and you don't want to add any unnecessary weight yeah makes sense mm-hmm. so it's like is it kind of like a tarpaulin style like waterproof canvas pulled over the people's legs and then you're at the back stood up yeah yeah, yeah you're exactly right so there's like a little almost bag that you'd put the people in so you'd kind of get one person sat down sometimes put a blanket on top of them get the next person sat down and then maybe another blanket and then there's kind of two sides of a bag that kind of go over the top of each other and a bit of velcro um mm. just attaches that up so pretty much just their heads are poking out especially if it's a very cold day um and then yeah i'd be stood at the back um kind of stood over them on the skis cold as cold as balls yeah because i was gonna say you must be stood up exposed to the the wind and the cold and everything yeah yeah it's it's kind of comes into one of the things i was wanting to say which is it is it was honestly probably the best experience of my life mm-hmm. but at the same time probably one of the hardest experiences of my life and that may be just me being a drama queen but it's tough to do this job like so rewarding and so worth it but it really ain't all sunshine and rainbows you know you're doing every day is pretty much a 10 hour day and you know you're pretty lucky if you get 15 minutes to eat your lunch in the middle of it you never stop running the stress level never gets below 100 you know everything's especially when you've got so many dogs barking and going crazy and you've got other people that the energy level just stays high just so that things can get done Mm-hmm. as quick as they can be and you know you pretty much at least for me 10 minutes into getting out of the car in the morning you can't feel your feet can't feel your hands you know you can't really wear gloves because you're using fiddly like um yeah clasps and stuff for all the leads and everything yeah. and it's just like the stress level is always so high yeah. extremities are always in pain your face for me personally my beard's always frozen <laughs> 
and it's just Keeping yeah, the, the, the stress warmer. level is up there. Yeah, I was gonna say actually as soon as I asked, do you get cold? Because I I almost knew you were gonna say that it's hard to wear gloves because I know in those types of jobs where you're fiddling around with carabiners or lock lock snaps or you're moving things or attaching things like anyone who's tried to do that with gloves on knows how much of a pain in the butt it is to use gloves just to just to do any job to build something or use a power tool with gloves is just so frustrating but then to Mm. do it in the cold as well when your fingers are numb and it's harder to get like be dexterous and like coordinate something so you kind of got to like bite the bullet and just be like okay no gloves and yeah i I almost knew you were going to say no gloves so that's um, yeah yeah so, yeah, pretty much. Like we would occasionally like kind of tuck gloves into this little net that we had at the back of the sled, so that once you actually get going, which is when it's really cold and your hands are on this frozen bit of wood, and you've got wind and snow going into your hands, like sometimes you'll pop some gloves on because it's just excruciatingly cold. But yeah. other than that, you pretty much can't wear them. What was the coldest day you remember working when you looked at the charts? <laughs> so, it's broadly so anyone that might be listening is not in Whistler we've got a bit of a cold spell at the moment yeah it's pretty much was this time last year and we had a day where it was I believe the wind chill and everything it came to about minus 30 that's cold (laughs) and I worked one or two of these days didn't have to work the whole period oh man my god it was just agony the entire day like you i you know, not even getting out of the car. The dog said, "Get out of my house and going to the car." My beard had frozen, and then just having to do a full day in this, and you know, you're wearing like, like sort of cargo pants sort of style trousers because it's very dry when it's like this. That's the best thing. Mm. It's like there's no wet anywhere, so and that's one of the biggest kind of killers for feeling is when it's wet, cold. When it's dry, cold, it's almost not as bad. But everything just freezes. Like cargo pants are just frozen in place. You like break them every time you stand still for thirty seconds, trying to loosen them up again. And yeah, it's just absolutely Baltic cold. Yeah, it's a different. I know what you mean. There's a different type of cold between dry cold and wet cold, and then the wind chill factor as well. And you mm. can you can have a day where it's minus ten, or let's let's go less than that, like minus three or minus two, but it's kind of wet the snow's falling on you and, and it penetrating your jacket and then the wind is just coming sideways and it feels super cold. But mm. then other days when you've got minus 10 or minus 15 and it's it's not doesn't feel as bad. Yeah, the wind, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the wind is, yeah, the wind is a, is a killer as well. Yeah, so like on, on that day when it was the coldest spell, like it probably was the coldest I had been, <laughs> but it was no way near the worst you know, as compared to when it was minus five, and as you say, it was just dumping with snow, yeah. with rain sometimes. You're soaked to your core. Like, I could have wrung out my boxes at the end of the day, sort of wet. Yeah. Those days were 20 times more difficult. Oh, man. Like, that, those are the days that everyone's down, the dogs are down. You can really sense that. And it's just, yeah, they were the tough ones. But then again, it's always offset by you know you could have five days of that and two days where it's beautiful sun it's warm you know you're sledding everyone's sledding in hoodies and sometimes even t-shirts 
views are incredible. Like we have a great view of this mountain, Black Tusk in Whistler, which is a really striking mountain. It just looks, our trail just looks right down onto it. And those days do just make the whole thing completely worth it. Absolutely amazing. Oh man, you're selling it to me. <laughs> I'll keep it on the bucket list. Oh yeah. So that's actually, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. So where is the sort of circuit that you guys take the customers and how long, I know you said you do two tours of roughly an hour or more. How long is the sort of circuit you take uh, with the customers and where does it sort of go through? Yeah, so just in terms of any Whistler locals, it's out in the Callahan Valley, so about a 20-minute drive out of Whistler. Yeah. Um, and then the kind of whole experience for most people that would come and do it, it's around about kind of two, two and a half hours from leaving the village, driving out there, going into the what we call the yurt. It's like a old... Inuit, I don't know, it's like a native sort of building. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got like some instructional stuff and what to do if certain things happen in the sled for the guests. Get some tea, get some cookies, and then they come out. We do about an hour tour with them, come back, and they'll get to look at the pictures. We've got like photographers out and the GoPros on the sled. Uh, get to look at all those, get some more tea and cookies, and then they head back. Um, and we'll have usually sort of five slots of that in a day with usually mm-hmm. five sleds per slot and that's why we need so many dogs because you know we've got 25 tours in a day broadly and you know dogs can only really do two in a day so they do get swapped out throughout the day quite regularly yeah how many dogs is it per sled to pull roughly there are eight dogs per sled um yeah. So you've got your two lead dogs, which I'd mentioned before. They're generally your, your smartest and most responsible dogs. They're the ones that oftentimes we can let off off of lead and they'll just run around and they'll come back to us, even though we don't have a crazy connection with them. Um, but they'll generally come back because they understand the whole process and they're yeah. just responsible and they need to be able to do that because if our lead dogs start going off and sniffing something to the side, every other dog in the pack behind them is going to follow and you're just going to be having a bad time, really. Just chasing dogs. Yeah. Um, and then the kind of trade-off for that, for their extra responsibility, is they don't have to do that much pulling. So you'll generally see the lead dogs don't aren't putting in that much work. They're generally smaller dogs um, be- because they have that extra responsibility in them. And then the further back you go, the more focus there is on just being able to pull. So you kind of come all the way back and you've got your wheel dogs. Um, and they're generally the big beefy dogs that are just strong as hell, excitable as hell. That's one of the most important things. And they just want to pull as hard as they can. Um, and that's where most of the power is. And then the two in between, the two kind of rows in between that is just a bit of a mixture of the two. Um, more responsible but also good pullers and yeah it's one of the fun things well sometimes fun things you come in in the morning and the kennel leader will have written up everyone's teams um, for the day on a whiteboard you kind of come in with your flask of tea or something in the morning and look at your teams and you're either going yes I've got some strong teams I'm not going to be running up that hill today or you're going to be crying and starting stretching because you're going to be doing a lot of work that day. <laughs> yeah. 
man, I just took a sorry, I, I took a sip of water right as you were about to finish and I was like holding in a cough so hard then. And I like, had to swallow the cough because I didn't want to just ruin the <laughs> ruin your your awesome description. I was gonna that's that's a really good question. I was gonna ask as well. Did did you have a favorite dog or a dog that you really connected with and you just felt like this guy or this girl is just it understood you kind of thing and you guys were on the level together? Yeah. So funny enough, I I wasn't sure if you knew this or not. So there was one dog that I remember from the very first day I went in there. Um, and I was going around and I was cleaning up shit in the kennels and restocking the beds and stuff. There was one dog that I really just connected with because he was in a kennel with these two crazy dogs. One was barking the whole time. The other one was jumping all over me, trying to get my attention. And there was just one dog who just sat on, like, stood on top of his kennel and just looked at me and just waited for me to come over to him. I started giving him some cuddles and then I turned around, kept shoveling, shoving the dog's poo and he just put his head on my shoulder and just kind of sat there and just I don't know why but I just immediately fell in love with this dog and then kind of carried on with the season eventually got to the dog sledding mm-hmm. and I basically asked if I could have this dog on my team because um, I loved him and Jamie the lady that owns the whole kennel I think it was her she basically said you're welcome to because he's a rubbish sled dog. <laughs> I was like, what, what do you mean? He's like, he doesn't pull. Like he loves going for the runs, but you can see him when he's running, he'll just be looking up at the trees and his tail will be up in the air. You can see he's not pulling. He's just having a good time. <laughs> he's just a daydreamer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just head in, head in the clouds. Um, and I started running with him and he was like that with me. You know, he wasn't kind of working that hard, but I still got on with him really well. And we eventually got the chance where we could actually, all of the guys could kind of take various dogs home. They'd take them home for an evening or two evenings if they're not needed the next day and just bring them back. There's obviously lots of rules and everything to make sure that nothing went wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used to take this dog home all the time. Um and then it, eventually, as we started to build up connection, he got way, way, way better at actually pulling. He would start working really hard for me, but he wouldn't do it with anyone else. And kind of going through this process, one day we were coming back in, and Jamie just looked at me as I came back in at the end of the tour, and she said, what on earth have you done to this dog? He's actually working for you. <laughs> um and I was just, I don't know, we just spent loads of time together and kind of got on well. And yeah, that, that was kind of that for the time being. Then COVID hit and we would had a late start and obviously we had to have an early finish of the season. And so Jamie was basically like, I'm going to have to adopt out some of these dogs. And that's the whole thing. It's a very rigorous, rigorous sort of process for getting these dogs adopted out because they need to make sure they're going to the right person, someone who can handle a sled dog and everything. And she basically gave me the opportunity to adopt this dog. Um, his name's Leo. And a year later, he's my best friend. <laughs> oh man, that is such a good story. Yeah. It's, that, it's amazing. I was legit smiling the whole time. As soon as he said he put his head on your shoulder, I was like, Oh, <laughs> this is a, this is a good story. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. What Real kind of, love story, that one. Yeah. What kind of colouring does he have, Leo? I want to put a picture to the name. Um, so he's 
I believe technically an Alaskan Husky cross with sort of Siberian. I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a random one. So he's kind of gray and white, relatively small for a Husky. Um, but he's one of the more long head ones that I mentioned earlier. So he would generally only do one tour in a day um, because he's got that really thick double layered coat. Um, you kind of stereotypical Husky broadly. Yeah. And he does have an Instagram if you want to follow it. <laughs> oh, I, will, I was going to say, flick me a photo afterwards and I'll, um, Try put yeah, it up, for sure. Try we'll put do. it up on the podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, Leo, the bludger. Only doing, yeah. only doing one tour a day and staring up at the clouds. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he's, yeah, he was one of the, pretty much the only dog in that kennel that I genuinely believed enjoys life better out of the kennel. Like, because you look at all of these dogs and they are just living the life. Like they've got all of their friends, yeah. like 150 of them right at their fingertips. They're in a kennel with friends that they can play all of the time. They get to go out and run, which they absolutely love. Like it's just in their blood to love running. They get great food. They're out in the wilderness. They don't need to worry about trying to navigate human life. And it's just an absolute dream come true for them. Yeah. Leo is the only exception. He lives on the sofa. We still go out for lots of runs and fetch and exercise as much as I can. As soon as we come back in the door, he jumps on the sofa and he goes to sleep. <laughs> oh, he's the chiller. Oh, yeah. So what? That's um, I'm glad you said that the dogs uh, eat really well because I was going to ask that as well. Like, What's a standard diet for a, a running dog or a sled dog? Is there anything in particular that you try and incorporate in their diet yeah so that was kind of the kennel manager responsibility was all of the food and everything yeah um but obviously we had to administer it that sounds pretty bad we have to give it to them every so often um so they would get their first meal in the day after their first run yeah. um and that's mainly just for actually hydration so bring them back from the tour we get little bowls out and we had what we would call our soup. Um, and it would basically just be warm water with some kind of semi-cooked chicken in there. Mm-hmm. And the reason being, we need them to hydrate. They have to exercise. They don't want to drink. They won't drink. But if you put a whole load of really tasty chicken in the bowl, they're going to drink the whole bloody thing. Um, so that's where they kind of get their first meal of the day. Um, from that, then... At the end of the day, once all the tours are done, everything's cleaned, the last thing we do is feed them. Um, so we get these huge chunks, like honestly about a meter square, um, not square, um, like a meter by a meter slabs almost of either raw chicken or raw fish. And they basically all get cooked up in this huge um, cooking pot put together with some, I believe it's called like a power kibble. So just a really dense energy kibble. So like they're dry food and that all gets mixed together into a, a big slop almost. It looks absolutely disgusting, <laughs> but these dogs lap it up. Like it is, especially for how much energy they burn in a day is they really need that as much energy as they can get out of their food. And that this is just absolutely perfect for them. Yeah. Like a raw meat diet with lots of energy like they yeah they lap it up but you can't then feed that if you take a dog out of sledding like i couldn't feed that to leo now 
just with the amount of energy in that, like he would just get really fat and it would be far too much for him. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that you never really think about. If you're a, let's say you're a customer or you're someone like me and you go, oh, I want to go sledding. You don't, it's not the first thing you think about behind the scenes is like, they've got to feed 150 dogs every day. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, and then that kind of comes into, so it's relatively for what it is, it is pretty expensive to go and do. Um, so for kind of one sled for two people in, it'll be around $500. Yeah. Um, which is pretty expensive what it is but then it for one personally like it's kind of cringy to say but you almost can't put money on how amazing the experience can be and two you really do have to remember that we can only make money for you know on, on a good year six months out of the year on a bad year four months out of the year exactly yeah. and you know it's it's not like you know it's dogs not for christmas like we have to keep these dogs and maintain these dogs for an entire year yeah so over the summer there's no way for us to make money so every single penny that we make over the winter is pretty much just trying to be saved so that we can feed these dogs and keep their vet bills and you know everything else that you need to do throughout the year and then just cram in as much money making as you can in those few months that we can do it yeah and 500 isn't too bad like if you if it was for a sled and you can split it between two people or even if it's a bit more for two people like you said, it's an experience you'll never forget. And yeah, maybe people shy away from the, the price a little bit. But if you really broke it down, like let's say you were a young couple and you wanted to go on a date or something. By the time you've gone out to dinner, I don't know, got a cab, got a cab home, had some drinks, you might spend close to 300 bucks on dinner and drinks just between the two of you with a tip in Canada as well. So yeah, very for, true. for a, for a little bit more, you've had an experience and you've, you you know, you've got some GoPro photos or whatever as well. And I can, that's, mm. that's pretty fair. Like it's, it makes sense when you hear about, even just then when you said the vet bills, that's a whole nother thing that I had, or I guess people don't really consider like 150 dogs is a lot of work to look after. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. So how did the conversation go down when, um, when you got the okay to adopt Leo, were you just stoked? It was, honestly, it was a very difficult process for me. Okay. Um, it had never been in my mind that I wanted to adopt a dog at this kind of stage of my life, let alone in, you know, on the other side of the world to where I'm from. Yeah. Um, but like in taking Leo home so much, like we made such a good bond and if it had come to it and I could have left him at the kennel, I probably would have done. But basically because Leo didn't want to work, the boss was like, I want to get him adopted out. Um, kind of, you know, let him live that couch life. Yeah. So if I didn't take him, someone else would have done. Yeah. And I actually had him at home for about a week, I believe, before this, because we were closed at this point, so I wasn't working. So I'd had him at home as a bit of a quarantine companion for about a week, had this phone call, and I was like, now I have a big decision to make. <laughs> and I managed to, I think I drew that decision out for about a month, and I had him at home this entire time. Oh, it is, it is a big decision, definitely. Yeah, and like, if if I didn't think I was able to get him back home if I needed to go home at any point, or, you know, if I wasn't able to provide for him in any way, shape or form, I wouldn't have done it. Like I wouldn't, have, would never be that selfish to a dog. Yeah. 
Um, but I kind of just, something just switched on my mind one day and I just thought, do you know what? I, I am so, so in love with this dog. He is my best friend. I would honestly just do anything, anything I can to make sure that he's healthy, he's happy and he's safe and he's mine. <laughs> um, and that's why, I, you know, I've been working like six days a week and doing all of this stuff just so I can make sure I've got money and I can provide for this dog because he's just became that priority for me. Wow. That's yeah. That's so incredible, man. That's such a big, it's like a snow. Yeah. I, I don't know how to explain it. Like it's, it's like one small decision to, to join the dog sledding company and then you end up loving it and working these big days turned out to be the best experience you had in Canada. And then it snowboarded into having to make a, a, a do or die decision on, Oh, can I adopt this dog? And I've got to go, maybe have to go back to the UK or can I stay? And, and you, it's actually really cool that you decided that Leo outweighs all the, all your fears and doubts. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was kind of one more thing that I did want to bring up as well, especially yeah. for anyone listening like around the Whistler area. A lot of people will know about this, and we had to learn about this before we could take any guests out because we were going to get questions on it. Um, so there was an incident a good few years ago when, I think it was 2010, when the Winter Olympics were in Whistler. Um, there was a dog sledding company in the village. Um, I believe, I don't really care about throwing them on the bus, um, it was the company that now calls themselves TAG, um they had to change their name after this incident um they had a dog selling company great over the olympics olympics left and basically all their business dried out and they i believe they just decided they couldn't afford to run them anymore and there was lots of debate on who did it who made the call whether it was the kennel manager or the company itself for whatever reason basically all of the dogs got euthanized oh my god really which, which is horrible um Dude. and yeah they they killed all of these dogs as a huge lawsuit and everything which is why they eventually changed the company name to the adventure group which is tag and it was just honestly when i heard about this it's just one of the most harrowing things imaginable because you've got these dogs you live with them day in day out you know you see their packs and their relationships develop and just the thought that a lot of these companies do get run purely for profit and the dogs are just an object for creating that profit is just horrible. So if anyone ever is going dog sledding anywhere, just do the research and really try and make sure you're going to somewhere that's doing things properly. Yeah. It's like that whole riding elephants in Thailand kind of thing. When exactly. Pe- when yeah. people started to realize what was going on and how the elephants get treated, you know, they get, yeah, man, that's, that's crazy though. And you know, what's like, Part of one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast is because I really like to try and um, listen to to every side of a story, like from both perspectives, and it's it's crazy to think that that happened. But I also got I I feel for the people that had to make that call, like surely they would have been on on hard times to be like, oh my god, we can't afford to keep these dogs. We've got to you're going to have to put them down like that would have been a super tough call to make like not a not a light decision so that would have been a heavy chip on the shoulder for i i don't know i do very much appreciate where you're coming from i don't know if i agree because at the end of the day i feel like 
find the a easier well the humane option would just be to get the dog the dogs adopted out oh totally that's, that's so what many I mean, people man. are just desperate to own us to get an ex-sled dog i can't imagine it would have been that hard and they would have probably made a bit of money out of it as well it was probably just a slightly harder option oh you and think so that's... someone along the line probably just went oh do you know what this will be easier oh okay i was thinking more that, about like that may be completely incorrect like yeah just from my own experience i really have developed a hatred for these people but yeah, yeah there probably is another side to the story but yeah i guess i was taking the more um the approach that their hand was kind of forced perhaps in oh this yeah, is that's very possible yeah. but I, I i i know what you're saying as well like at the end of the day your hand is never really forced you can find a solution or you know mortgage yeah. your house or i don't know but I, I think, yeah, the, probably the thing was is someone was put in charge of these dogs that wasn't really a dog person, I would assume. And so to them, the, the kind of the livelihood of the dogs probably wasn't at the forefront of their mind and they just maybe hadn't considered the consequence of their actions. It was just a you know, profit-based decision. I, I, I don't know. I'd never knew the person, but obviously. But yeah. But yeah, it's just, just, it's just worth kind of looking into these places just to make sure that the dogs are treated right because to me and especially to Trappers Run, like the dogs are just the number one priority. Like if we have a terrible day, so what? It's, the dogs are the number one priority. Like That's drilled into you from the start. Yeah, that's such a good ethos as well and I, I really think that makes a difference in uh, not only the life of the dogs, the experience that you get but then the experience that the customer gets and it's kind of like a circle of when things are done properly like they the I hate to use the word vibes but it re- <laughs> it really is the vibe you know what i mean you know when you go to a, yeah. like you go to a, a greasy restaurant and it, things are dirty and you you don't want to eat there and you're like oh i don't know about this but yeah. it's kind of like that if you i know if you rocked up to a any sort of adventure company and you felt like things weren't being running run right, or the you could see from the get go that the dogs weren't being treated right. It would just leave a bad taste in your mouth. You uh, you just wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things that Jamie, the owner of the kennel, she would always go on about was just these dogs are just so intuitive with human emotion. So one day, if you're you know you come in really hungover, you don't want to be there, and you're just tired. The dogs really will sense that. And they won't work as hard and they're not going to make life easy for you. Whereas if you come in and you're just, you're hyped, you're excited, you're ready to go. Everyone's in a good mood. Dogs are going crazy, super excited to get running. Yeah. You're going to have a great day. And I think yeah. that obviously, or as you say, translates then into the customer as well. They can see that when, you know, we're vibing, as you say, with the dogs on this trail kind of, having a good time we're having a laugh with the other sleds and all yeah, that sort totally. of stuff like it really all tran- transfers into one thing really yeah i think human interaction is is honestly quite the same like if you've got you have a good day at school everyone feels good oh it's summer the sun's out or you have a super cold rainy day the teacher's grumpy because they're hung over and like then everyone's <laughs> everyone's mood's brought down or you know you have a good game of footy you win everyone's like, yeah let's go like, yeah it, the the mood is infectious and i can I, I think everyone who's ever owned a dog or been around dogs knows that dogs are very good at reading uh, human emotions for sure. They can pick up on yeah. a lot, a lot more than uh, we think they can. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you, 
do you reckon um doing this dog sledding is sort of open a new world of instilling a love of nature and animals and all that kind of thing in you as well like did it kind of because yeah like you you ended up adopting a dog it was a completely different experience for you you're on the other side of the world working a job that's pretty much impossible to do back home so it's a unique experience as well do you reckon it sort of led to a yeah to a instilling a sense of love and for nature and animals i really think it did um that's so cool I hadn't really considered it like that until you just said it, but I, yeah, I think you might have just hit the nail on the head again, because it was kind of since working with the dogs that I got, I've always loved animals. I never had pets growing up, but I've always loved animals. I've always got on with them so well. Like animals always seem to love me for some reason. Yeah. Um, I always loved that, but then just being thrown into probably one of the most high stress level kind of animal working jobs you could do it's just so full on all of the time yeah just kind of being thrown into that just kind of opened up that whole new side of like you know maybe wouldn't want a dog sled for the rest of my life because (laughs) it's exhausting but working with animals it's just like having watching the the interactions with all of the dogs and just kind of experiencing the whole thing and being part of the pack just really made a huge impact on me in my life, which is why I think I would like to kind of carry on working with animals um, yeah. for the rest of my life. It's something I could see myself being very happy doing. Yeah. Yeah, you've always been good with animals, man. I remember when you were you were so like happy to be around Loki and Loki was so chill with you as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he was definitely a big part of that as yeah. well. I love that dog. Yeah. And that dog loved me like we always used to joke um well obviously Britt his owner um we used to joke that Dan her boyfriend was Loki's favorite I was a second favorite and she was a third favorite um <laughs> until one day and I decided to bring a little old Leo home and Loki basically wouldn't come near me for the next month oh he was, so he was heartbroken <laughs> oh, that's so yeah. funny Loki oh <laughs> Poor Loki. Poor yeah. Loki, man. He gets so much love, though. Oh, yeah. I remember I walked Loki through the village, and I honestly felt like a celebrity. I'm not... I'm, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not trying to, to, to dress that up, but people, and especially girls, girls love dogs, man. And I was walking... Oh, yeah. I was walking Loki through the village, and so many people that would just... You know, people don't really interact with each other for the out of the blue unless, you know, something funny happens. Oh, you dropped your ice cream. Ha ha, see ya. <laughs> but, like, when I was walking Loki, the people would, oh, he's so beautiful. Look at his colours. Oh, he's so big. Oh, is he part wolf? And then the girls would come up. Oh, I've got this kind of dog. And, like, yeah, mm. I, so many people just took took a shining to Loki. And, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is a real crowd pleaser, that dog. Yeah. You're like, I, I was the same as you. I used to just walk around the village. And people would come up to me and almost seem like really worried that I'd stolen someone else's dog. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> knew like, Loki. This isn't your dog. I know Loki. He was like, yeah. this is my housemate's dog. Just relax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's just funny. Do you, people um... come up and start cuddling him and be like, oh, and I'd just be stood there like, I'm sorry, who are you? Yeah. Everyone sort of, yeah, it's funny how Loki, maybe Loki's a celebrity. <laughs> I'm, just his, <laughs> yeah. I'm just his entourage. Yeah, people would ignore me when I walk through them. <laughs> yeah, we're just the 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 background. Loki's yeah. Loki's walking us. 
<laughs> yeah, quite literally. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, uh, so obviously there were some really cool dogs that you remember, but was there any really cool customers that stayed with you as well? Ooh, good question. Um, it's kind of, it's hard to discern because they all, I feel like for a lot of the interactions, I ended up, and I think everyone broadly ended up coming up with a very similar framework for pretty much every conversation we would have on the tours. Yeah. Because they ask you the same questions every single time. Yeah, of course. And you ask them the same questions all, all the time, kind of get to know them a bit, tell them a bit about the dogs. Yeah. Do they enjoy it? You know, are they treated right? All that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's, it was pretty rare to actually get a conversation that actually would engage you. Like it almost became autopilot most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there were some great ones. But there was one that I remember, and I wasn't working this day, um, which was kind of annoying, but I was told about this celebrity that came out um and he Maybe. was i think he was some sort of reality tv star that none of us had actually ever heard of um <laughs> but he was apparently quite famous Lied on his he resume. Came out, um he came up with these two very pretty girls and they all had these big like fur jackets on and stuff didn't really care about the dogs they had um a photographer in the next sled um so they kind of went out, went to the top, and they basically got to the top, came out of the sled at the little break turnaround point, all whipped off their big fur jackets, and the girls were in bikinis. This dude was in his board shorts. Oh, man. And they were just using it as a photo opportunity. And, God, it just looked so funny. He had, like, a bowl of liquor, I think, um, that may be made up. But, yeah, it just sounded like just one of the most entertaining <laughs> tours to do. Oh, yeah, oh, actually. I guess you can never pick it. Oh, um, just before you start, we've only got two minutes left, so... Okay. No, no, but go, go. Please go. Um, yeah, so there was one tour that I did actually really enjoy, and I remember them. Uh, this guy came to us beforehand. He was like, I'm going to propose to my girlfriend oh, on this tour. And we were like... Legend. Okay. So we went right at the back. Um, got, got a bit of space enough in the other sleds so by the time we got to the top they all left so they had the top all to themselves I kind of went and hid in a corner and this guy proposed to his girlfriend and she said yes amazing tour and they were so happy when coming back down um, and I think they had like they brought along a bottle of champagne or something at the bottom and I do just remember these guys being so lovely and it was such an amazing experience to kind of share with them even though I didn't know who they were <laughs> Oh, for sure. Yeah, you were you were a part of it in some small way. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, and I kind of was picturing kids just being wide-eyed because, you know, I want to do it now and I'm 26. If I was a kid and I went dog sledding, I think I would just be like, whoa, this is insane. Like, just, yeah. just absolutely mind-blown. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, Cal, thanks so much for um for sharing, man. I feel like there's there's still so much to, to go over. I... I Every time I do a podcast, I write down a list of questions and I, I still have like a half a page of questions. I... <laughs> Sorry, it's probably just me waffling on for ages. No, no, it was awesome. I was. It's <laughs> it's why I enjoy doing it. Can can you flick me a photo of Leo and we'll um we'll put it up. We'll. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Sweet. Do. Perfect.